As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Commander Shepard, and this is my favorite lore cast on the Citadel. Welcome to the Mass Effect Lorecast, the podcast where we explore the vast lore behind the Mass Effect games. Specters, welcome back to the Mass Effect Lorecast. This is your host, Tom, or Robots. I'm here with my good buddy, Sam, and Seven the Legend. Sam, it's an exciting episode. This is a fun day. It is. We have another special guest with us, and, uh, you know, you've surely seen his work throughout the Mass Effect games. John Eppinger joins us on the show. Welcome, John, and, and thanks for joining us. Hello. Thanks for having me. John, welcome. We're so excited to talk to you. And uh, this is the first opportunity we've had to talk with a developer, somebody who's actually worked behind the scenes other than in a voice acting capacity, uh, somebody who has a lot to do with the foundations of the this series of games that we enjoy so much. Um, can you just start us off and give people a little bit of your background and how you've been involved in the series? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I uh, started at Bioware in 2007, right when uh, Mass Effect 1 was wrapping up. Um, previously to that, I had uh, always been interested in storytelling, uh, spent a lot of money on a theater degree, um, which is very lucrative, as I'm sure you know. Yeah. And uh, I was looking for ways to uh, uh, make money through storytelling and um, ended up uh, making some uh, little uh, machinima videos using the World of Warcraft engine. And um, those got noticed by uh, some people at Bioware um, and uh, applied there. And uh, my brother and I actually got hired as a, as a team since we've been uh, making those videos together. Um, awesome. So yeah, we went up there uh, right when Mass Effect 1 was wrapping up. And then we uh, worked on uh, Dragon Age Origins. And then after that, I uh, moved on to Mass Effect 2. That's awesome. I remember the days of the World of Warcraft uh, machinima stuff showing up in early YouTube videos like this this era of stuff that's amazing I remember that too yeah that was YouTube was a different world back then and I also feel like some of the some of the machinima content was better back then than some of the stuff I see now like like on average it's entirely possible. Yeah, this was like pre pre monetization YouTube. So it was basically, yeah, there was a group of us, uh, the machine community just making movies for fun. And there were a couple online contests that had some uh, low level prizes. 
Um, but yeah, at the time it was a bunch of scrappy people that wanted to tell stories. Um, as far as why the content might be a little rougher these days, I know that uh, the industry actually hired a bunch of people like myself. So a lot of, a lot of talent got, got pulled straight into the industry. Um, so we left Machinima, but you got to experience uh, our, our, uh, work, uh, officially. So, and, and speaking <laughs> of your work, uh, now you worked on the cinematics for mass effect. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I was part of the, uh, what was called the cinematic design team. Um, and Bioware at the time had uh, kind of two separate uh, cinematic tracks. One was the uh, cinematic animation team, which were the uh, really highly skilled, highly talented uh, keyframe animators who were doing all the really cool uh, starship battles and um, stuff that was really high octane and really high fidelity. And then there was a group of uh, cinematic designers uh, like myself who were in charge of all the interactive elements. So basically any anytime there was a choice wheel involved, uh, we were handling those scenes and we got to do a lot of really, really awesome stuff as well. But we were, uh, we were not keyframe animators. We, uh, we had a different workflow. This is a, this is a, a universe of things that unless you've been involved in it, you don't really know a whole lot about how that stuff works. Um, I do, I do recognize the frame key, the, the term keyframe from the little bit of animation stuff that I've looked into and those kinds of things. But th this is not my area of expertise. Um, it is, it's really cool to hear things from your perspective. When you, when you started out, what was your title and then as you moved on in the company, did, did your title change? Have you had different official roles or titles? Yeah, yeah, I think um, I got brought on as I think an associate cinematic designer and then that moved up to um, just straight up cinematic designer was the next level. And then uh, by the time I left by where I was a senior cinematic designer um, and then above that there would be you know leads and then eventually uh, Bioware introduced a director uh, level roles as well. Wow. Um, so yeah, there would usually be a lot of cinematic designers, uh, a couple of lead cinematic designers and some associates. And even I, I think assistant was kind of the, uh, the entry entry level, um, for people that uh, had a lot of passion, but not necessarily a lot of skill. So there were at that time, yeah, there was kind of like four, four tiers of cinematic designer, I think. Yeah. That, I mean, that tracks, it seems like things are like that in a lot of different kinds of companies and corporations where you have the different tiers and different levels, depending on your experience. So uh, if you're actually down in when you're, <laughs> when you, when you're getting your hands dirty, when you're down in the muck and you're, you're working on this, what does a regular day look like in the life of a cinematic designer? Yeah, it, uh, it looked like he had too much work to do. <laughs> right. <laughs> that, was one of the, <laughs> that was one of the key things. Um, cause yeah, again, we were the ones in charge of, uh, the kind of 40 hours of interactive, uh, content, which no, no player ever sees all, all 40 hours, uh, branching content in a Bioware game, but we would, we would handle about, you know, 96% of that. And then, uh, the, the cinematic animators would uh, handle a much smaller uh, portion and their, their stuff tended to be more, uh, uh what we would call critical paths. So there would be less branching involved. Mm -hmm. Did you have a did you have a role to play in figuring out what those scenes would be or were they were they written and scripted by a different group and then you did the animation or did you have feedback on what they should look like and how they should play out? Yeah, that, that kind of evolved over the course of my career at Bioware, um, even even starting before I did. When cinematic design was first kind of introduced as a discipline at Bioware, they didn't have a lot of control at all. Um, as I understand it, again, on, on Mass Effect 1, um, it was mostly they were handed scripts and said, hey, execute on this uh, as best you can. And they could, you know, give some feedback and work with writers, uh, of course. But um, 
everybody was moving at very, very high velocity and always is. Um, so there's wasn't always a lot of time to go back and like say, Hey, this script, um, can we change some things up to maybe uh, make it more dramatic or more high intensity? Um, but no, it was always, there was a, a fully staffed writing team that would handle uh, writing all these scripts. And then at least early in my career, um, for the first couple games, it was very much, we, we show up, somebody hands us a, a level and the scripts as they get written, get past us. And then we do all the animation and camera work and the blocking and uh, all, the, all the cinematic parts. Cool. Yeah. I, I can imagine how that would evolve and how that conversation might change from game to game as you become more and more uh, familiar with the way the scenes have played out previously and, and all of that. Sam, did you have a question? Yeah. So, John, I, I want to ask, you know, can you describe for our listeners what the environment was like working on Mass Effect back then? You know, we know the voice actors rarely got to work physically in the same places together for scenes. Was that the case for your team on Mass Effect? Did you travel for work? What was it like day to day? Um, we didn't travel much at that point. It was uh, it was basically um, all the cinematic designers in a room together. Um, there were about 10 of us on uh, Mass Effect 2. Um, and yeah, we were all just kind of crammed in there. So you were with your peers and we could all look over each other's shoulders and kind of uh, uh, exchange uh, ideas and information. I think there might have actually been two rooms for us for Mass Effect 2 because uh, um, the, the Bioware office in Edmonton was a bunch of bunch of small rooms. They later knocked down a bunch of walls and made uh, larger rooms. Um, but yeah, we, we never uh, got a chance really to interact with the, the voice over uh, actors. That was another department would talk to them, run them through the script and direct them through the voiceover. And then um, we would, uh, yeah, get that voiceover at some point. We could make requests, like if we, you know, blocked out a scene, it was like, oh, I, the way I've got this set up, like Shepard's really in this person's face. Like, can we, you know, have them give us a more aggro read on this? And if there was time, uh, that department was always happy to go back and try to get that for us. But there were also other times where, yeah, you'd, the VO would come in and it's like, all right, that's what I got to work with. So now I have to adjust some things on my end to, uh, to fit the performance with uh, what the vocals are. So there was a two-way street of communication between the voice acting team and your team. It wasn't just a one-way dynamic. It grew into that. And again, this was kind of across the board with the writers and everybody as a cinematic design kind of um, grew a little, little bit more established at Bioware. And we were able to kind of put our mark on more content, kind of show what we could do if we were uh, given um, access to some things earlier on and make it a little bit more of a two way street. Um, we were able to get really, really good results. So it was never, it was never a fully two way street, but it became a lot more, uh, like that. Um, but at the end of the day, again, it was all about like, Hey, we've got, we've got a week to get this done. So there is no, there is no time for, uh, for much, uh, discussion. It's just kind of, uh, the, the, uh, the content must flow. Yeah. Just, just got to get it done. Hey, I've got a kind of off the cuff question. Um, when you were working on animation stuff, as with many games, there are clearly scenes where you, you see the animations of the in-game assets, like the, the ones that you move around in effect. And then there are scenes where the assets improve in quality. Um, and you described a little bit this at the beginning is most of what you did using the in-game assets. Or how does that work? Were you working in the game engine itself or were you scripting things using a different software? Great question. 
Yeah, no, we were always uh, in-game. Um, uh, cinematic design was, we were always uh, in the real-time engines. We were working directly in Unreal. Um, the cinematic animators would be working in uh, 3DS Max at the time, I right. believe, or uh, okay. Maya, again, doing the keyframe animation and then importing things into Unreal. But no, we were always uh, fully in real-time um, in the engine. And yes, we were... Uh, again, we couldn't create uh, bespoke animations ourselves. We couldn't like say like, oh, you know, the script calls for Shepard to reach up onto this shelf and pluck something off of it and then throw it uh, over to a, a henchman. Um, we would have to say like, okay, the script's asking for that. I have this animation library mm-hmm. of things that had been built um, over the course of several projects. Um, and a lot of it was gameplay stuff. So you'll, you'll see a lot of like, uh, combat animations, um, in our work that are just directly, uh, ripped out of the gameplay, um, library. And then we did eventually get, uh, some small budget to motion capture some unique stuff ourselves and to kind of build some of the, uh, pose, um, sets that we would use because we'd have, we'd always be working off stuff like there's arms crossed and standing neutral and step forward, these different pose right, sets that they right. The ones you see over and over again. And once you've played exactly, the game enough times. Exactly. Yeah. All the, all the Mass Effect fans and the, the Dragon Age ones as well have seen all these many, many times and even cross uh, franchises. We had a yeah. Yeah, limited set of poses and then a limited set of what we would call gestures. It would be like little arm things and head things on top of those. And it was our job to take those kind of Lego bricks of animation and, and build a performance, stacking them on top of each other. Did you I have- gotta ask. <laughs> Go ahead. The Shepherd, the Shepherd Shuffle. Was that bespoke? <laughs> that was bespoke. Yeah, that's that's motion capture. Um, I, yeah, that was one that uh, we purposefully kept in the library um, because you know people people loved it, and you know you couldn't you couldn't replace that with something. It's I think it's canon that Shepard is a pretty bad dancer. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that's pretty great. Who was the? Do you do you know or do you remember who who the actual model was for the mocap? It wasn't Mark Mir, was it? No, no, no. This was um, all the motion capture was done offsite. And no, certainly on a Mass Effect 1, 2, and 3, we didn't have the uh, didn't have the uh, capability to have the actors uh, themselves come and do the motion capture. So it would be somebody else, um, a, a stunt actor or a, a specific motion capture actor. I believe most of the capture was done out of uh, Vancouver. Or just Jimmy that. in accounting. Hey, Jimmy, we need you to do a funny yeah. dance. All right. No, luckily we got we got somebody more specialized in that. But there there were a couple times where uh, I know like an animation uh, lead would go to capture something, and if the actor wasn't doing it right, then the animation the animator would jump in the suit and uh, and act it out themselves. Um, so there were definitely there are some there are some developer animations in there, I think. But most of them were yeah paid paid professionals who were uh, who were specifically uh, talented at that. I'm going to be look on the lookout now. Um, so, and and speaking of that, from a player's perspective, we we know that you worked on the interactive, uh, the interactive dialogue scenes. Which scenes might a player remember that you can point to, and or maybe you see put these posts on Reddit, right, of like gameplay. And which of those scenes can you point to and say, hey, I, I did that. And and keep in mind, you know, we are really some super fans on this podcast, so. So there is no such thing as too obscure of a reference for us. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I, uh, I will also say that I, I can't remember everything because it has been many, many years now. And I'm afraid the old memory is as good as it used to be. But on uh, Mass Effect 2 specifically, I did a lot of work um, with the uh, henchmen on uh, the Normandy. So I like all the relationship dialogues. 
Um, I think I did, uh, I did all of, uh, Tally's dialogues, uh, Grunt and Thane and Legion and Morden. Um, there were five of them. Was that five? Uh, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't counting, but maybe I was. <laughs> admittedly, I wasn't counting. I was either. picturing each uh, of them in my mind as you, as you went over them trying to like yeah, no, that's, that's visualize yeah, it. Telly, Thane, Grunt, Legion, and Morden. Yeah, I, I did all the all the Normandy conversations uh, with them when you were getting to know them, and they're when they're when they're locked in their rooms and can't go anywhere. That was that was me as well. I was, all, all of their relationship dialogues had to be in the, the same room where they lived. Was so it? Th- does that include the romance uh, scenes as well? <laughs> the uh, the final romance scenes those were handled by the cinematic animator. So yeah, as, as, as soon as it became smoochy time, then that was somebody else. <laughs> but, uh, but every everything up until then, yeah. I, uh, yeah, I was in charge of uh, for those characters. Smoochy time is very important. I, I've, I, on a similar note, uh, you have very different body types among you know, some, like Tally on one hand and then Grunt on another. Was it was it awkward trying to animate different models, being that there's such a variety in size and shape? Absolutely, and that was yeah one of the key things. Again, when we were building these uh, pose and gesture sets, we had to be very conscious of uh, certain characters having limitations like the Krogan stubby arms and they, they <laughs> yeah. hunch over a lot. Um, but the animation team did a great job of uh, uh, using, I believe it was additive animations to kind of make a lot of that stuff work. Um, but yeah, we had to be very conscious of, you know, you could put an animation on a character and oh, suddenly, yeah, the the animation where Shepard touches his forehead, if I use that on Grunt, his hand goes through his face. Yeah. Um, so I need to, I need to not use that animation or um, do some do some tricky stuff with the camera um, or some uh, additive bone masking. And so we, we had a couple tools to alter some stuff on the fly. But yes, it, it did not all work uh, out of the box for all characters. It was a, a pain at times. I think this is kind of surprising, at least for me, and it, and I think it will be for a lot of other Mass Effect um, players who who don't know a lot about uh, development of games and how that works. Because for me, I I'm, I'm like just learning for the first time that like, and it and it sounds so I don't know stupid or, or, or like coming from a neophyte that that like there were all of these limitations that that you and your team had to work in and and like i guess it just makes mass effect that much more impressive because you had to play the the hand you were dealt right yeah absolutely and that was that was kind of uh cinematic designs mandate specifically and again why um bioware cinematic design ended up hiring so many uh, machinima makers was it was all about you got limited or in some cases zero resources what can you build um and make an amazing scene so you had to yeah you had to look at these animations and be like all right so that's a guy like kneeling down if i put the camera over here can i make it look like he's you know kneeling and grabbing something off the ground even though we don't have an animation for that how can i utilize all this stuff to to use the player's imagination um, to, to tell the story that is being called for in the script. And yeah, I, I wish I could say that, you know, we were showered with money and animation resources, but it was very much uh, scrappy MacGyver type stuff. Um, but that was also very, very fulfilling because when you could pull off something, you were like, I don't even know how I made that look real. It should not look real <laughs> um, with what I was slapping together. But yeah, that's a pretty convincing uh, walk and talk of this uh, character going uh 
going down this hallway and gesturing and talking and rounding a corner. And that was always uh, supremely satisfying. You uh, were able to put together something you didn't think you'd be able to. Yeah. Well, well, half of his body has clipped through things that the camera just didn't happen to notice and all of that. Um, is there, is there a specific scene that you have in mind where you feel like, Oh my God, I totally made this work and nobody knows that we really like rigged it in a way where if you just move the camera around, you'd be like, Oh my God, that doesn't look like it works at all. I mean, the sad, the sad thing is like basically everything. It looks, uh, it looks broken as heck. Um, I'm trying to think I, I had on, uh, on, uh, on Dragon Age 2 and on Aspect, I spent a week trying to drown someone in a very shallow pool of water. <laughs> and I eventually managed to get it to work. And I was very proud of that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, nothing specific uh, comes to mind, I'm afraid. But uh, it's, it's, all, it's all very broken. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, okay. So speaking of like moving from one game to, to another, you have Mass Effect 1. And then in Mass Effect 2, there's... The vibe is much more action hero-y. If the cinematics feel different from one in a... I don't know if they're more polished or just more dramatic or more cinematic. Do you have an idea for why that might be? Yeah, yeah. It's it's a combination of a lot of things. Um, so Mass Effect 1 was kind of um, cinematic design's uh, first real crack at having a strong mandate to make a real cinematic game. Um, there had been a couple cinematic designers on previous projects. Um, the Mass Effect one was the one where Bioware said, "Hey, we are going to make a a cinematic game, not just in you know an hour or two of hand animated stuff, but with all these uh, branching dialogues we've always had." Um, so they made a very small cinematic design team. I think there were only four or five of them on uh, Mass Effect one, and again had a very limited palette of resources and animation and tools for like camera work and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then for Mass Effect 2, they said, hey, that worked out great. Let's give more resources. So um, more manpower uh, was one. Uh, again, there were, I think there were 10 or 11 cinematic designers on Mass Effect 2. So that at least like, you know, doubled the amount of hours uh, we could throw at that content. Um, another thing was, uh, again, specifically just kind of like dialing in on the art of cinematography um, for that branching content, seeing that um, it could be done to a certain quality level on Mass Effect 1. Now, Mass Effect 2 for the sequel, what can we do to really ramp up the artistry and the quality of those? There was a, a specific mandate inside the cinematic design team to just do do more complicated and better stuff than, we'd, uh, than they'd done on the first game. Um, and then there were a lot of structural things as well, um, just in the way the interactive dialogues are structured. Um, and again, the, the layman um, never sees this stuff, but a lot of early uh, Bioware dialogues, as, as I understand it, um, where they would always kind of like loop back on themselves um and there would be investigate hubs that would um sorry i'm getting into some really nerdy terminology uh, game dev uh, terminology here but you could you could start a scene and get halfway through it and then have a line that would take you back to the beginning of the scene which would mean that if you were trying to like block it out so that they were starting sitting at a table and then they get up and walk over to a door and then go out into a hallway you can't do that if there's a choice that takes you back to the first line because it they needs still to be need to be at the table. Yeah. Um, but by the time Mass Effect 2 came around, um, there was a decision, again, to make these scenes more cinematic and more like um, dramatic uh, scenes in a movie or a TV show that had, you know, structured beginning, middle and end. Um, and so there would still be investigate loops inside that. 
but the writing team would structure them so that they could have dramatic um, cinematic and blocking progression throughout the scene. So you could do that stuff where you start the scene sitting at the table and then Thane would get up, you know, go over to his weapons cabinet, look at it, stand there for a lot of the dialogue. And then I would just need to get him back in his chair at the end. But there was uh, a good chunk of time where I could move him um, away from that initial position and know that a choice wouldn't try to loop you back to uh, a port uh, part where he was supposed to be somewhere else. And for, it felt, yeah, it, go ahead. I think we're about to say the same. Natural. Yeah, we're saying the same what? thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like from a, very, very from a, from a viewer's perspective, it's it, the, the way the animations play out, especially once you get to two, feel more natural. There's, there's that, like, you don't necessarily notice that like, oh, well they had to go back to the other part because of the, the dialogue options and those kinds of things. You're, you're engaged with the story and the dialogue and what's happening. And it takes you away from the mechanics of the moment, I think. So, and it was in 2010 and like, you know, uh, I remember I was like a day one player for mass effect two. And I remember in 2010, like playing through these, these cinematics and, and the dialogue choices and being like so immersed because it was, it, it mass effect two was set apart from so many other games at the time. And I wanted to ask John, you know, what what do you think about Mass Effect 2's storytelling through cinematics? Was it that set it apart from other games at the time? Um, again, I think it was that the, the company made a conscious decision to throw throw more bodies at this problem. Um, I know, like the uh, the Witcher one um, came out in a, in a similar time frame, and they. Um, we're just kind of like starting their own cinematic design program. And you could see a, a marked difference between like Witcher one dialogues and Mass Effect two dialogues. And I know we, we were certainly like, all right, awesome. We are, we are killing it. We are pushing things forward. We are putting more quality into these, um, compared to them. But, you know, by, by the end of uh, Witcher three, like, boy, howdy, they were, you know, neck and neck with us, if not kicking our, kicking our, uh, at the end of a uh, Mass Effect three. Um, but it just shows that any company, if you apply the right resources, you can get that kind of progression. Um, you just have to, you just have to commit to it. Yeah. I would, I would say that the jump from Witcher one to Witcher three was gigantic. Cause even like Mass Effect one compared to Witcher one, Mass Effect one, like w way better than the, the cinematics from the Witcher one. It was like that game felt like an indie project as opposed to a triple A game. Right. But by the time you hit Witcher three, they've definitely caught up. And then now you're now you're kind of neck and neck. Sam, do you have another one yeah. you wanted to ask? Yeah. You know, speaking of the third game in, in a trilogy from Mass Effect two to three, we really see a difference as players in tone you know it's much heavier it's more solemn there's so much more gravitas uh and the best way uh, uh on like a third grade level that i can put this is you know it's it's less like michael bay directed it and more like christopher nolan did and how did that difference in tone translate to your work like are there any examples you can remember yeah i mean from a very high level it was you know uh, the the Mass Effect trilogy has a has a an arc. You know, the first one's much more about exploration and you know 
kind of uh, discovery and then you get into kind of some horror elements in two where you, you know, you're starting to see what the Reapers are and the repercussions. And then by three, it's, it's the full on apocalypse. Um, you know, literally the um, <laughs> g- genocide is, is the, uh, is the word of the day. Um, you know, the, the Reapers are out there, you know, cleansing entire planets. Um, so that definitely, at the core, like it just has an impact on the scripts, what the writers are writing. And um, then the cinematic team, you know, we kind of, we follow in their footsteps um, and look at the content and we will, any, any cinematic artist worth their salt, if you give them something highly emotionally impactful, um, like, you know, tragedy, um, we will chomp at the bit to just knock that out of the park. Um, you want to do something that has high emotional, uh, uh, content. So if you're saying, Hey, this is, this is the end of the world. All of these people are, are suffering and, you know, trying to live their lives as best they can during this time, you can't help but step up to the plate and, uh, and have that, you know, drive every time you're looking at a shot. It's like, how can I, how can I express that Shepard is, has the weight of the universe on their shoulders at this moment. Like this is, this is not a fun thing that we're doing in, in Mass Effect 3. This is, you know, this is, uh, you know, it's, it's the, the survival of sentience in, in the universe. Well, I mean, it opens up in, in that tone perfectly, you know, uh, like from the very get go with the leaving earth, uh, sequence as, as, and, and the music just kills it too. Um, with Shepard seeing the, the shuttle where the, the child is, is killed. Uh, and then the subsequent dialogue with James after walking on the Normandy. And you can tell, tell that like for the first time in a lot, like maybe, ever for the player having played this shepherd is truly rattled and snapping at his own squad mates and i uh, did you happen to work on that conversation with james uh shepherd and james right after they leave earth i did not um no i worked on some uh, later stuff in mass effect 3 um but yeah but that's that's exactly it i think that that was kind of the the turning point where you know we were telling the player hey uh Shepard might not have this under control. Mass Effect 1 and Mass Effect 2, like, you know, there's some rough stuff in there, but in the end, the hero's going to prevail. Um, but yeah, Mass Effect 3, there was there was no guarantee. And speaking of later stuff, you know, we've been we've been talking a lot about Morden on this podcast in the past couple weeks. And I think you had a hand in some of the scenes about the final curing of the Genophage, right? Um, yeah, yeah, I, I did. Um, uh, I get, as I mentioned on Mass Effect 2, I'd done um, all of Morden's uh, dialogues in the Normandy. And as, as part of that, I got to um, do the, uh, the fantastic musical number um, <laughs> that he sang. That's still one of the, the highlights of my career. Um, I remember I, I read the script for that. And I think I had uh, I had a, a day to do the entire dialogue that um, has that inside it. And I read the musical number. And again, I have a theater degree. So I was a little bit of a musical theater nerd uh, myself. So I was like, I am going to throw everything I have at making sure this song is super cool uh, with, the, with the limited time I have. So I spent uh, I spent half of my my full day that I had for that dialogue just on the like the three lines that he sings. Um, but as, as part of that, when Mass Effect 3 rolled around, um, they'd already been working on it while I was, um, up on, uh, uh, working on Dragon Age, uh, 2 at the time. And when I came down, you know, they were 
um, kind of assigning who's doing what level. Um, and the uh, the writer and the level designer who are working on uh, Genophage 2, that's the, the level that's the end of the, the Genophage campaign, um, they came up to me and they were like, hey, we, you know, we were huge fans of what you did um, with Morden on Mass 2. Um, do you want in on this level? Um, and they kind of laid it out for me what was going to happen. And I was like, yes, please. Um, I will do anything to work on this level. In fact, if my lead gives it to another one of my team members, I will have to stab them so that I can have this level um, because it's <laughs> incredible. Just um, what they'd uh, what they'd laid out, what they wanted to do. Um, yeah, again, it's it's a it's a it's it's a dream to work on that uh, that level of emotional payoff. Um, over that huge Genophage arc across the entire trilogy. Um, and I, yeah, again, I, I loved Morden as a, as a character from working on him and to give him that sort of um, redemption and um, that finale to his arc, um, I, I, I couldn't pass that up at all. So yeah, I, I jumped at the chance to, to work on that. And the is, blocking yeah. was for Morden, especially during that scene, it is so... Uh, it's so impactful because it's not just you know it's not just impactful and dramatic and it and it's tough for the the players to watch a character that you perhaps love going to a certain depth but it's also perfect in my mind because you can see the internal struggle within morden throughout his arc and he's this extremely cerebral uh person right and and you see it a lot on the normandy in mass effect 2 him pacing back and forth and he's he's like mm-hmm. shooting ideas basically to himself back and forth in his head and the cinematics kind of reflect that but then as you get closer to Genophage 2 like you said that the, the the finality of this arc he's doing less of that pacing and he's more at peace yeah and i i like tom and i say this a lot very few things in fiction are coincidence and i assume that that was not a coincidence no, no. Tried to um, again. That's the sort of thing that um, you you kind of build in there and hope that it reads. But yeah, he was he was a he was a changed character at that point in time. He had a lot. He kind of firmed up some ideas about his place and his role in the universe and in history. Um, in my mind, and yeah, we tried to tried to reflect that. Um, obviously, the writers did a, a fantastic job in the writing, and I, I tried again just to just to execute on that um, with the blocking and the cinematography and, and the animation. Um, and when you're, again, you're given such, such fertile ground as, uh, as that content, um, you can just hope you don't, you don't mess it up and you do it right. And I, I, I like to think that I did a, a passable job at it. Um, it was, uh, yeah, it was a lot of work and certainly my, my, uh, my favorite uh, part to work on is not, most people might think that it's the, it's the kind of, Paragon version where he goes up and he saves everybody and it's fantastic. Um, I actually took a lot of pleasure in working on the Renegade version um, where um, he he goes up in a in a compromised state due to player actions. Um, and um, I, I knew we had to make that version of the scene so that the player had the option. But it was my personal goal that if you did my boy more than dirty like that, um, <laughs> I was going to emotionally shiv you as hard as I could um, <laughs> wow. and, and make you watch every every moment of him going up that elevator and uh, what happens at the top of that tower. Um, I poured everything I could into 
making you feel like a real jerk for doing that. That was, well, you accomplished that mission 120% because um, I've talked about this before on the lore cast, but the renegade like sequence of, of dialogue and the cinematics in, in that um, in, in Morden's fate is like one of the most gut wrenching scenes in mass effect and something I've never actually been able to bring myself to do, but I've seen YouTube videos of it. Mm. And yet when Morden kind of, when Shepard pushes Morden to the edge and Morden turns around and snaps and says, I made a mistake. It's like, Oh wow. Holy, holy shit. That, that was like some of the best, uh, it was, it was like the best culmination of, of, of dialogue, of background, uh, uh, lore and music and the cinematics. And it just, there's a beat in everything after that and then you know you can ultimately shoot morden um and you know I, i'm not worried about spoilers because the game's been out for a while but, <laughs> but um <clears throat> but man you you really did nail <laughs> nail making that a guilt trip thank you thank you very kind and yeah again that was uh, that was one of those moments that line specifically the i made a mistake that is yeah that's the linchpin of that scene and that is one of those ones where we did go back and forth with the voice actor a couple of times and, and get some alternate takes um, so that they could yeah, really match what I was trying to do visually there. Um, and yeah, I, I think again, everybody, uh, you know, executed perfectly. Um, and yeah, that was that scene when uh, Shepard shoots Morden. Um, one of the little Easter eggy things that I did build in normally when Shepard pulls out uh, a pistol throughout the trilogy, it's usually um, a different gun. I, I think it's the the Tempest was the name of it. Um, but there's there's a pistol that generally Shepard uses throughout the entire trilogy. But if you pull the gun on Morden, um, I specifically uh, made it uh, the Carnifex um, that Morden uh, gives you in Mass Effect Two. Oh my God! And, oh. Yeah, and then if you uh, if you pay attention in the scene after Shepard shoots Morden with that. Um, there's a, after Morden is in the elevator going up, there is a shot of Shepard, um, throwing the Carnifex away in disgust, uh, before they walk out of the room. And that was, that was a, a nice little, a nice little nod to the history between them, uh, that we threw in that I, I really enjoyed. Another little twist of the knife. That's incredible. Exactly. Yeah. That, that's not just you, a twist. That's a, a thrashing of the knife. <laughs> <Another step. laughs> you, yeah. you, you shoot him with the, with the gun he gifted you with. Yeah, that's amazing. Biting well, the hand yeah. that feeds. Yeah, yeah well, you're right. you're a big old jerky, jerky, jerk. <laughs> big old jerky, jerk. Uh, well, we've got a whole bunch of other questions to get to, but we have to take a break here in order to thank our patrons. So don't go anywhere because, man, this is this is super interesting stuff. We'll be right back. I am so excited about our sponsor this week, Marvel Strike Force. I freaking love Marvel Comics. Growing up, I collected comics and the trading cards, and I've seen pretty much every Marvel movie they've made so far. So if you're into Marvel like I am, go check out Marvel Strike Force. This is a mobile squad RPG. You can collect and unlock all the different heroes. You fight against supervillains. There's a campaign. There's a blitz mode. There's an arena. There's a constantly evolving meta. And right now they're celebrating the Deadpool anniversary event. This is a mission 
from Strike, where you log in the first time and you unlock this generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, a bunch of other items. It is absolutely the right time to jump in and try this game out. Click the link in the show notes to download it now and then use the promo code MAXPOOL, M-A-X-P-O-O-L, MAXPOOL. Don't miss out on all the free stuff and thanks again to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at grammarly.com slash podcast. That's grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Message coming in. Patching it through. I am sovereign, and this station is mine. I like the sound of that. All right, here we are in the middle of the show, and we're going to do this quick in order to get back to the interview to get as much more time as we possibly can here. And we, but we have to shout out our newest patron, Samuel R. Welcome to the Patreon. We we appreciate the support. Thank you so much for being here. We're currently at sixty eight patrons, and we have to shout out our Shepherd tier patrons as well: Kokushins, Ed Boy, Aaron J. Kira C, Lieutenant Ticino, that Specter J, and William, thank you so much for all of your support. Uh, normally, we'd read out some reviews and stuff, but we're going to cut that for and put that on next week because then we'll have more time for the interview. So let's get back to it. Here we go. Spit it out, or are you trying to build suspense? You're so dense, sir. Obviously, I do not know as much about human relationships as I thought. All right, we're back. We're back. See, that didn't take too long. Sam, did you have any other follow-up questions on the Morden stuff? Um, you know, not about not about Morden's fate, um, but I did want to to ask about other characters' ultimate fate. Did you work on any other characters' ultimate fate? Um, no, no, that was the main one I was focused on. Uh, Geno Two is one of the biggest levels in the game, and I had two other smaller levels. But we tried really hard to spread out the the really good stuff uh, amongst the entire Cinematic Design team. Um, so no, the, all, everything else, the other really good finales were handled by others. And again, the, the entire team crushed it. I mean, the, uh, you know, the, um, the Geth Corian, uh, finale is truly just one of the, one of the greatest moments, um, in, in gaming, in my opinion, it's uh, so, so well done by, uh, my colleague, Zach Scott. Um, and yeah, every, everybody on the team, again, all those scenes really, really crushed it, but I, I can only lay claim to the one. The yeah, the, there's still iterations of that Geth Corian war 
resolution that I'm that I'm seeing. Like my partner just played through Mass Effect for the first time not long ago, and she got the ending of that Geth Corian resolution where Legion snaps on Shepard and picks Shepard up basically by the collar and is about to throw Shepard off the cliff. And I had yeah. never seen that before. I, I didn't even know that that animation was possible, honestly. <laughs> and and when I'm watching my partner play through this, I was like, holy shit, <laughs> that, was, that was really intense. Yeah, yeah and if I, I recall, is that the one where Tally comes up and stabs Legion in the back with her, her, her boot knife? I think that was the first time the boot knife came out, even though it had been on her model since uh, Mass Effect 1. I can't remember exactly how uh, Legion dies, but Legion certainly uh, gets gets um, taken out <laughs> by by Tally. And uh, that was yeah, that was a heck of a scene. Um, how about uh, let's talk about some other final scenes of Mass Effect three, um, the beam run and the Citadel confrontation. Uh, did you uh, work on those or work, I suppose, with uh, close friends who did work on those? Yeah, I didn't work on those specifically. Um, I knew the people who did. It was a very, very small team, um, and it was pretty. Um, it was a pretty. That one was held pretty close to the vest, um, so I didn't see it until only you know a month or so before the players did. Um, so no, I, I didn't have a whole lot to do with that, but I know everybody who did um, was very, very passionate and. Um, the uh, the people who led the franchise were extremely invested in it and had eyes on it every minute of every day. And um, I, I certainly don't don't envy that kind of eye on you from the from the higher ups. That's a lot of pressure. Um, but yeah, again, everybody involved um, was very dialed in on what they were trying to do. And uh, obviously, um, the don't think they uh, hit the marks as far as what uh, the fans were expecting in a lot of regards. Um, but yeah, uh, there were a lot of, you know, budget time constraints. And, um, again, all I know is the, uh, the people who led the franchise were there every step of the way overseeing it. Yeah. Uh, Sam, was there something else you wanted to ask? Yeah. On the, on the topic of, um, the ending and then the extended cut, uh, were you know were you aware of any uh maybe talking with your coworkers of subtle differences between the different endings and the different extended cut uh explanations uh that inattentive players may have missed like myself with that carnifex uh easter egg that you had brought up nothing off the top of the head um yeah all the extended cut stuff was done by the cinematic animation team um the cinematic designers we were already on the dlc at the time if i recall um so I, yeah i was kind of hands off on that i was also yeah again you know seeing seeing some stuff uh, on coworkers screens but yeah i didn't have a lot of interaction with the with the people building that content when they were doing it but i know that there was a very palpable sense that um that a lot of things that were left kind of up to the player's imagination in the original ending and people had kind of assumed that, oh, you know, nobody looking at this, they'll, they'll know that, you know, the sublight drives will get the Turians home. Nobody's going to starve on their way back to their galaxy, even if they were left on Earth without their uh, agriculture ships. There were a lot of things that, again, I think the, the dev team um, thought that the, the players would um, come up with on their own. But certainly some of the assumptions that were made from the original ending uh, surprised 
us um and they're like oh they thought that like every everybody starved to death after that like oh no no they, <laughs> they still have engines even the mass effect relays are gone but they can they can get home like they got they got food on board <laughs> yeah you've mentioned a few times uh responding to people's reactions after the games were launched and and it, you know how things kind of just take off on the internet some idea gets planted somewhere and then everybody rallies around it is what was it like being part of the team and just seeing everybody's reaction to the games after they launch? It was great in general. Uh, like I said, we were always so appreciative of the fans' response. It was obvious that um, the, the games, people love them and they love the characters. They love the work that we were doing. And, um, you know, we, at that time, uh, most Bioware devs were putting in a lot of extra hours. Um, there was a lot, of, a lot of crunch at that time because we were all so passionate about the projects. Um, and a lot of us were young, young and dumb and uh, didn't have real good work-life balance. Um, <laughs> and we're kind of, yeah, spending a lot of hours in the office. And so then seeing the player reactions, um, the critical response, um, yeah, it was really, really um, heartwarming and always fueled us on for, for the next project. Um, and yeah, there were a lot of things, you know, we were always reading forums and, and you know, once YouTube became a thing, watching reaction videos and all that stuff. And anytime um, somebody can put out content that shows the dev how much that the work that we've done means to them. It is always so, so appreciated because we do work in a vacuum for years running without any sort of feedback from, uh, from the people who are making this for. Um, so you can, again, work your butt off for three years with no fuel to kind of keep that fire going other than what your coworkers give you. So when we do put out a product, and people have that response. Um, it really revitalizes us and and uh, makes it makes it all worth doing. Really, at the end of the day, we're we're, we're doing it here to to make stuff that you guys care about. Um, and you know, the the hope is always that the, every every project we work on, no matter what character or no matter what uh, franchise or what company you're with, you always want the gamers to be happy at the end of the day. Yeah. On a similar note, to kind of follow up on that, um, did you have any sense at the time that we would be in 2023 and people would still be on their, you know, 10th playthrough of the games and and still talking about it and listening to a podcast about it and all of that? Probably not this far out. Um, I mean, we definitely we felt like we were doing something special um, the time that I was there on Mass Effect 2 and 3. Definitely. Um, but yeah, it's always, you know, uh, media comes and goes and you never really know what's going to stick around for the long term. But I think just the fact that choices persisted across, you know, an entire trilogy, everybody knew how revolutionary that was. Um, and was to big. this day, again, yeah. it really has only been attempted by a couple other projects with, with good reason. It's, uh, it's really hard to do, <laughs> and it's really hard to do well. Um, it takes a lot of resources and a lot of effort, um, and there's cheaper ways for game companies to make money than to commit to something as ambitious as that. Yes, yeah, it's, it's very true. <laughs> Sam? With, with so many hours that you were putting in, uh, and I... I work in a pretty demanding field as well, uh, where, I mean, you're talking about, uh, being young and not having a, uh, a good work-life balance. I'm living that right now. So that, <laughs> that speaks to me. Um, but that being said, I know in my own workplace, we have some running jokes that kind of, you know, ease the tension and, and get us through, uh, were there any running jokes among your team? Uh, maybe ones that we, we can see present in the game as Easter eggs or other things like that. 
Um, yeah, a couple. I mean, obviously, like at some point, I should go. Like, really took on its own momentum <laughs> um, in, inside the dev team, even before uh, probably everybody else. Because again, we would we would pick up on it while we were building the stuff. Um, so yeah, stuff like that would always come up. There would be there would be little internal jokes. Um, one that. <laughs> One that uh, I really enjoyed was there was a bug on Mass Effect 1 on the Citadel where there's a quest that you can't complete because one of the there's like 10 keepers that you have to find on the Citadel or whatever. And one of them, there's a bug where the keeper will sometimes go missing. And so, <laughs> and so you can't actually complete the quest. Um, and once that's locked into your save game, like there's no way to fix it. Um, I think what happened was like the the that npc just like drops through the floor or something if if you load the different areas if you like go into this room and then go into that room and then go into this room again like there's a very small period of time where the character will try to load when there's no floor for it so it'll just like drop through and then be gone forever and you'll never be able to find it, <laughs> it just falls um, out of the citadel <laughs> somewhere someone is listening to this like i freaking knew it <laughs> yeah no it was it's one that yeah people people are aware of this bug it's a little bit of a, a deep cut but um we also knew about it internally and i was friends with the designer who um was in charge of that quest and had failed to kill that bug and it was always a, a mark of shame um <laughs> on his soul that uh that there was a, a quest out there that you couldn't complete so when it came around time for us to do uh the shadow broker dlc from aspect 2 um the uh the cinematic design team after you beat the dlc you can go to the shadow brokers uh computer and look at these dossiers and there's these little uh videos that you can watch and it's just like you know 20 just like weird nonsensical shots of characters doing things and if you if you know the lore like there's something most of them like they're a callback to something um mm. and one i did um whereas there's a uh, there's a shot and again if you don't know about this bug it makes zero sense but there's a shot of a keeper in a very small room with no doors um looking like they're at the bottom of an elevator shaft and they're just turning and kind of like patting the walls um, <laughs> that's amazing yeah oh, that's and that was, that was my uh, that was my homage to my to my friend's missing keeper that's amazing that's uh, that's so great that poor keeper just stuck in a room without any yeah, doors just he fell down a ventilation shaft or something and oh, nobody, no. nobody knows where they are they're just stuck there for for eternity oh that's great that's great so uh on the on the topic of favorite memories do you have any other in general favorite memories from your time there I mean, there were a lot of great ones. Um, the dev team was was so great, so passionate, and full of really awesome people. Um, one uh, one thing that has very very little to do with uh, Mass Effect, but at that point in time, uh, when Team Fortress Two came out, um, everybody loved that game. Um, inside the Bioware studio, there were a bunch of us that started playing against each other, like you know, forming teams and getting competitive about things. And then somebody got contacted from a developer at another studio and said that they were really into Team Fortress 2 and they'd formed a team that they want to play. And it turned into over Facebook, this entire game developer league of something like at least 24 studios formed teams. And we had like a full bracket. There was an underground Team Fortress 2 game developer fight club for two years. Um, where like LucasArts and Red 5 and Valve joined in and all these different teams, all these different studios, Blizzard and everybody formed teams. Then we would go at each other in what we call the Studio Rumble, 
And again, it was a full, full bracket with a championship and everything. And we did like two, two seasons of that. And it was a great way to, to get to know uh, devs across the industry. And then, um, and then uh, beat the hell out of them in Team Fortress 2. Uh, Valve won season one, but uh, Bioware, we, we <laughs> won. Uh, it was season two or season three. We were the champions. Um, and it was, it was a fantastic experience. That's that, so uh, cool. Yeah, probably nobody, nobody really knows about. What was your go-to character? Uh, I was a medic. And uh, again, I told you my brother got hired uh, with me, so he was uh, the heavy and uh, okay. heavy medics. Are, uh, so you were the pair, yeah. That's, yeah, so oh, he and I, we were we were kind of the anchors of the Bioware uh, team. So are you breaking the first rule of Team Fortress Game Dev Fight Club <laughs> <laughs> by Maybe talking it's, about it? It's been gone for uh, long enough that I don't think anybody will be too too upset. We, uh, we I think we even recorded some of the uh, some of the matches because we would go back and analyze them to figure out you know how to beat Valve or whatever team just kicked our teeth in. So there's there's some recordings out there of a lot of game devs swearing at each other <laughs> while playing Team Fortress Two. I'm just imagining Gabe Newell as Tyler Durden, and it's great. Um, <laughs> I know, I know that you're a gamer too. Uh, I think you've posted about it, uh, some, some things here and there on Twitter. What kind of games do you play in your off time? Um, yeah, I, I do play a lot of games. That's one of the reasons I, I got in the industry. I've always loved games. Um, I have put in an unconscionable amount of hours into the total war series, um, mm-hmm. total war, Warhammer one, two, and three, definitely, um, great. I play, a a lot of XCOM, the very, very original one and the new ones. Um, and I also play, uh, right now I'm doing a playthrough of Witcher 3 because um, it is an amazing game. And uh, the the downside of working at, uh, at Bioware was that all those, all the games I worked on, the six Bioware uh, games, they're all, they're all tainted for me because I, I worked on them. I know all of them about, everything about them, they're, they're no fun to play for me. Um, but uh, companies that do the same type of work, it's always a joy to play their stuff because um, it's, you know, getting getting to experience that type of content, uh, knowing, knowing nothing about it and just going in as a, as a player and a fan. And it's utterly delightful. I was going to ask, you know, with you having virtually all of the spoilers for Mass Effect, have you yeah. ever played through Mass Effect? I so I got to play through Mass Effect one as a fan. Um, again, that came out um, right after I got hired. Um, so I got to play through that cold knowing nothing. But the other ones I did play through Mass Effect two. I played through uh, before it went uh, gold when we were in the, the final testing phase after all the content was done. Um, so I got to play through that. A lot of the other, um, all three Dragon Ages and Mass Effect Three, I've actually never finished myself in my off time because um, yeah, I just I I know everything about them. I know all the twists. I know all the turns. And especially when you get to the level that you worked on specifically and have put hundreds of hours into just that one level, you have no desire mm-hmm. to play that level again <laughs> um, any more than you would just to stare at the wall in front of you for a couple hours. So usually I'll, I'll, I'll play through um, the other people's content and when I get to my content, I'm like, all right, that's where my save game stops and uh, just have to just walk away. Now you made jokes like the keeper stuck in the, in the, in the elevator shaft. You made jokes about your coworkers work. Did anyone ever make jokes about yours that you noticed later? Not that I know of. The only thing that came close kind of, and it wasn't even specifically my work. It was just kind of the, the, the piece of content in general. Um, but in Mass Effect Andromeda, there is actually a Morden callback um, that didn't, it didn't end up ship. Well, it shipped 
in one version um, but what what happened was um a writer had written um a little tiny side quest where um writer can go and ingest uh, a psychedelic herb or something and then they go on a little bit of a trip and uh they get sam the uh the ai in their head starts singing scientist solarian to them eventually <laughs> as part of the, the the trip and um i i got pinged by the designer who was working on that planet right at the end of the project i had no idea it was in there and they said hey did you know there's a there's a Morden thing in here. I know you're the Morden guy. And I was like, I had no idea. Somebody wrote that in. So I went and it had been designed as an ambient dialogue, which just means there's no, no cinematic camera. You just click on the character and the gameplay camera and they give a couple lines and then uh, some audio plays. Um, and so I went in there and I was like, oh, I can't just leave this as an ambient. So I actually made um, all the cinematic parts of it and made it so um, after um, writer and just the herb, like you get a little flash into their eyes and then it cuts away to this, uh, this, uh, Solarian, um, with their back to you, um, <laughs> facing out over a pool, which is the closest thing I could find to, uh, to a beach on the level uh, where this took place. Um, and so there is, yeah, in, uh, data miners have found a little, a little scene, uh, where you can see, uh, uh, Solarian from the back who kind of looks like Morton, but it's not cause he's got his horns. Um, and we didn't have a Morton, uh, uh, model for that um but that was at least a, a little little poking fun at, uh, at myself it's like oh maybe maybe more than worked on uh, sam as well who knows <laughs> that's, yeah, that's awesome i never knew that's that you fun. uh worked on that scene i've seen that scene and uh modders i believe have re-implemented that uh if you're playing andromeda on pc so about mass effect one since i know you played that one and part mm -hmm. of two do you yep. play paragon or renegade or mix I always go renegade, um, not because I'm an evil person much, um, but I always <laughs> found this, even from, you know, like Knights of the Old Republic and that, I always just found that all the the evil options are usually the most interesting visually. Um, and this is something we struggled with um, internally at Bioware was, you know, you can make a lot of like Paragon interrupts, um, but it's an interrupt has to be an action that has to like, you have to click a button and something happens. And that's pretty easy for renegade stuff. You know, you punch somebody, you shoot somebody, you do like an aggressive action um, for Paragon. That's harder. It's like, all right, I'm what's a, what's a positive physical thing I can do. I'm going to hug tally is a, <laughs> is a Paragon um, interrupt. Um, but we really struggled, you know, finding ways to make that interesting content um, for the, for the good stuff. Um, because it's, it's just, it's just harder to come up with what that is. And so that always kind of made me gravitate towards the renegade stuff because it was usually more visually exciting, more dramatic. Um, and yeah, you would, you know, get to punch a, punch an NPC or something. Yeah. A lot of actors will say that it's more fun to play an evil character than a good character, probably for similar oh, yeah. reasons. It's just more oh, colorful. Yeah, you get, you get to, you get to chew a lot more scenery. Yeah. On the fun. cinematic note, I was actually just talking about this on another podcast, the Two Girls, One Ship podcast. Uh, when it comes to subtle actions and nonverbal communication in, in romance and real life versus how we see it in Mass Effect and how dialogue had to carry a lot of weight because it seemed like the engine didn't permit uh, displaying a lot of these very subtle nonverbal things that human beings do when when flirting with each other uh 
but you you couldn't possibly depict that in the game as effectively. Is that something that you ever ran into? Oh, absolutely. Um, and facial animation was always for the cinematic design team. A lot of it was done um, procedurally. Like there's basically a, a robot that we say, "Hey, this is an angry line," and we've you know made some facial animations and some stuff. And the robot would just say, "Okay, yeah, the eyebrows are going to do this and that." And we could go in there and um, tweak that a bit and make it uh, unique. But even even the facial models, yeah, like you know, they didn't have a lot of control. Um, and even if they had, frankly, we didn't have the time to go in there and really finesse a lot of that stuff. Again, we were we were uh, trying to put out content in bulk, um, and you had to you had to paint with a broad brush, and that always started with the the body and the staging. And if you were lucky, you got time to go in and tweak some facial stuff. Um, but yeah, between that and the, the technical limitations at the time, yeah, we just were absolutely not, not able to, uh, give realistic, uh, facial performances to the extent that we can, uh, now with, uh, performance capture and the technology that's available, uh, these days. Um, right now you can, you know, basically take one-to-one a fantastic actor's, uh, performance on the stage when I'm directing them and it's, you know, flows, blows anything we did on Mass Effect 1, 2, and 3 out of the water just because of the tech constraints. Yeah, but you know what? You you guys did a job well enough with the tools you had that it, it really does stand up and it, it conveys a lot of the emotion and the feelings. Otherwise, people wouldn't respond so positively. So for, for the limitations you had, I think you did a stellar job. Yeah, there's Thank still you. new players, by the way. I'm still meeting people who have never played Mass Effect before and they're getting into it. And they're falling in love with it. So I think that says a lot. It holds up even all these years later, which is, you know, that's that's hard to do. Yeah, no. And again, also a huge, huge amount of that. I'm sure it goes out to the folks who worked on the Legendary Edition and really polished up a lot of that content for for the, the current generation. Um, and yeah, I, I even bought it. I'm hoping to go through and play through it myself once, uh, you know, time time has dulled some of the uh, knowledge I have in, inside the trilogy. <laughs> Um, it looks fantastic. And, uh, yeah, we, we certainly tried our best and I, I think a lot of it still holds up. So we're, we're getting to the end of the episode. We have to ask you, speaking about the end of things, which ending do you prefer? Yeah. Yeah. I, (laughs) I always want everybody to get along. Um, I would always go with synthesis. Um, and I know there's some, there's some moral questions about you making that choice. For, so, so wait, uh, you go renegade, but synthesis. Yep. Yeah. Interesting. I, I do. And you know, I would never, I would never go full, full renegade. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't shoot more than or anything, but, um, you know, I'd, I'd be a pretty, pretty rough and tumble, uh, uh chef. I'd be, I'd be bad cop. But yes, at the end of the day, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, I want, um, you know, peace and harmony for the universe. That's what, that's what it's all about. He's rough around the edges, but he's got a heart of gold. do you eat donuts too you like donuts you're a liability to the whole department but you get the job done exactly (laughs) well this has been uh so enlightening such an enjoyable conversation thank you john for joining us is there anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up the episode um no, no. Again, just, um, yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, more than happy to, uh, yeah, give a little peek behind the curtain. It's not something uh, game devs to get a chance to do uh, that often. And, yeah, just so happy and appreciative, again, for everybody who has enjoyed the work um, the entire team did. Um, I have zero knowledge about uh, forthcoming uh, Mass Effects, but uh, I am certainly enthused 
and um, really, really psyched about uh, what the team's doing there. I, I have a, a few former colleagues who have uh, are, uh, are working on it. And uh, yeah, I'm just really, really looking forward to what the franchise has in the future. Yeah, we're excited that the the series is continuing too. So we're, we're looking forward to that as well. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, thanks for being here. I know our listeners will very much enjoy the insight and the the uh, stories that you were able to share with us today. Sam, we got to wrap this up, buddy. Anything else you want to share? Yeah, well, John, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. And like you said, giving us that peek behind the curtain that uh, we as players, you know, on the other side of things, we as players so rarely get. And I think that um, especially for people who listen to this podcast, there's a great demand uh, for that. So we always love learning, uh, you know, more and more about how our favorite game was produced. So thank you again for for coming on. Um, My absolute pleasure. And I'm uh, for our listeners. If you want to stop by my streams, I'm streaming. Uh, I did take the past weekend off and I will be taking this weekend off because of Emerald City Con. But if you give me a follow at in seven, the legend on Twitch, I'll be streaming the conclusion to Mass Effect two for my neutral shepherd playthrough. Now, John, I don't know if you knew I was doing this, but I'm doing a neutral shepherd playthrough where I'm I'm intentionally trying to not pick anything too extreme uh, and mm. I'm not doing any interrupts. And it also means that he's very apathetic. So it means that he's not doing any of the side missions because that would be extra work. And he's the most lazy and wow. dangerous man in the universe. Is this mildly depressed shepherd? Is that what we're it's it's completely apathetic. Like, I don't know if you watched Futurama, but it's like the apathy people in Futurama. Um, and he, he he's a little bit disappointed. He was brought back from the dead. Um, so so he um, I think we all would be. <laughs> he's he's uh, he's Seattle Shepherd. No, I'm kidding. Um, he's, um, he is very much uh, just wanting to be done with it. So I am uh, 11 hours into Mass Effect 2 and I'm about to finish it which is not how the game I think was meant to be played. It's like almost um, a speed run. <laughs> what the heck? It's almost a speed run, but it is neutral shepherd. It has, I've marketed it to uh, people who watch me on Twitch as the least compelling gameplay you'll ever see because the dialogue is meant to be as neutral and reasonable <laughs> as possible. Um, so that is, I'm doing that on Saturdays. And then I'm also streaming Mass Effect Andromeda on Thursdays. Uh, sorry, no gimmick for the Andromeda one. Um, <laughs> but people, if they'd like to chat with me, can find me on Twitter at N7TheLegend as well. Yeah, go check out go check out Sam's streams. They're awesome. Also, if, you, if you've been playing The Witcher like John has, you can check out The Witcher Lorecast or any of my other Lorecast shows that I do over on RobotsRadio.net. Go check out all of that stuff. Lots of great shows for me and the other creators on the network. So if you're looking for more content, you can find stuff there. And John, thank you again for joining us. And Sam, of course, for being here and chat. Thank you for joining us for the live feed. We appreciate everybody being part of the show and, and helping support us and keep this thing going. We really do appreciate you. So that's going to do it for this week. We'll be back next week. And until then, stay safe out there in the galaxy. <laughs> we'll see you guys later. Bye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Mass Effect Lorecast. We'd love to hear your opinion and thoughts on the lore of Mass Effect. Reach out to us on Twitter at Mass Effect Cast or check out the Robots Radio Discord. Also, you can send us an email at MassEffectLorecast at gmail.com.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.